All right, welcome back to Black on the Air, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore. It's uh, it's good to be back here. Been away for a while. Uh, well, you know, it's been crazy times, and we've been trying to, you know, I've been trying to figure out how I want to do this show going forward. I needed a little break, you know, just to kind of gather and just kind of figure out the way forward. But first of all, let me say, I hope everybody's doing well out there. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're doing okay. There's so many issues, you know, to deal with. People um, losing their jobs, not being able to make money out there. People losing their businesses. People dealing with mental health issues is a big thing right now, as well as the virus itself. On a personal note, you know, a friend of mine, husband passed away from the from the virus. And man, it was very, um, very shocking when something like that hits close to home. And I know I'm speaking for a lot of people out there who've experienced this. You know how it can seem in the abstract when you're watching it and you feel sorry for all the people. But when it hits home, it is it is a little different, you know. So, you know, my heart goes out to everybody dealing with this. Uh, problem well with all of us, you know, we're all dealing with it. I saw this story on the news. Uh, Nick Cordero's, um, who's the actor Broadway star, his wife, man, she's so freaking brave. Um, I think he's been on a ventilator and has to get his or had his leg amputated or has to get it amputated. I'm not sure, but I saw her on the news and I was like, man, this woman is brave. I mean, the way she, her attitude is just amazing of how she's uh, handling all of all of that. But um, this is, we're going to be in a new normal coming up. And part of dealing with this is part of, uh, is something we're going to have to do for a while now. But anyhow, I wanted to get back on the air, to get back black on the air. I'm in my office again at home, so it may sound a little echoey in here. Apologize for that. Um, David Chang is on our show today. We had a really good talk a little while ago. And uh, restaurateur. Famous chef, uh, his Momofuku restaurants, uh, noodle bars in Manhattan and around the world. And Ugly Delicious, you've seen him on Netflix, his milk bar, too. All of that stuff. So we're going to talk about the restaurant business a little bit, how he's faring, food service industry, and all that kind of stuff. And, man, he really has some, some interesting thoughts on that. So I was really looking forward to having him on the show. So that was really a cool conversation. But um, anyhow, so we are in a different, we are in an interesting situation now. We've been dealing with the virus for a while. We've been in kind of a sheltering in place for how long has it been? Maybe a month? Longer? Six weeks? It's hard to know. Man, I've lost all track of time. I have to tell you, it's very bizarre. <laughs> Most of my time is spent with Buster, with my dog. Uh, me and my son, you know, we're chasing him around most of the time. My son is staying with me and he's doing well. He's He's able to take classes online and everything. My daughter is staying with her, with her mom, and she's about to graduate from college right now and, you know, wasn't able to have her graduation and all that kind of stuff, but she's been dealing with it pretty good. She's uh, just finished her, her thesis, so I'm real proud of, real proud of you, Lauren. So, yeah, so that's what we've been doing here. And I realize right now at this point, I believe that we are truly in what I would call a both sides situation. We are both in, and it's funny that the both sides are kind of, most. let me say this, most people hate both sides. <laughs> they hate that type of argument. This is not a both sides type of argument. You know, all lives don't matter. We're talking about black lives matter. And I get it. I get it. Most of the times that is a valid argument, but we are truly in a both sides situation right now. And here are the both sides. We are in a situation where the primary concern is the public health, right? And how do we mitigate right now has been our primary concern. How do we make sure that our hospitals don't get overwhelmed, that we're smart about, you know, the, you know, we, we, there's so many things that we don't know about this virus that we're smart as we possibly can about the possible ways to transmit it, sheltering in place, isolating and all that stuff. Different cities have been taking different approaches to it, and that has been our main concern, properly so. But now we're getting into a phase where cities are starting to loosen their restrictions, and we're going to have to get into a new way of living. 
And some people are just looking at it as a reopening thing, but I really don't. You know, I look at it as we're going to have to adjust to a new normal. And this is also a very important piece right now. How are we going to get things back open so people can get hopefully back into their jobs that they've lost or maybe get into new jobs? The economy can start going again and not just the economy going again, but people can have a means to make a living, you know. And part of this is not just reopening, like I said, but understanding how we're going to operate within the next year, year and a half under a new normal. Both of these things are true right now. And both of these things are very, very important. I don't pit them against each other. They're both important arguments. But it just really gets me when I see this being pitted against each other. Like like when people want to say, how, how can you say we have to reopen when people are going to die? And then the other part would say, we're going to die if we don't reopen, <laughs> you know, going against each other. This is the most ridiculous argument that's going on out there. And part of it, I think, is fueled by some of these, I think, uh, reckless uh, governors or people who are just recklessly reopening things without seeming to have real plans about it. And I blame a lot of this on the president, by the way, because I think the president has been so shameless in not having a clear direction for the country. He's only been reactive childlike, childish, and boasty, and all these things, has, has not come out with real leadership. And even if the plans change, at least to have certain guidance and true leadership, you know, it's been the least amount possible in terms of guidance. So, you know, some of these states have different needs as they should, but the energy around this reopening is if there's some liberal conspiracy to crash the economy and to keep people out of work because liberals want everybody to be uh, on the government dole or whatever, which is ridiculous because that system would be unsustainable. If we kept this the way it is, it would be unsustainable to try to have the government take care of this. The people who are concerned about this, are, of course, are, are concerned about the number of people that are dying by this virus because there's so much we don't know about it, just the way that it attacks the body, the way that it hides out. So I blame a lot of that energy, both on the recklessness of some of these governors, but also on the recklessness of outlets like Fox News, where they're the ones that start with that type of conspiracy theory that somehow the leftist media and the leftist energy out there wants to give you false information and doesn't want you to know the true story. Like they don't want you to know about hydroxychloroquine and all that kind of stuff, which is so fucking ridiculous. I'm so fucking fed up with Fox News right now. I mean, I have been for a long time, but the poison that they put in people's minds about these conspiracy theories and how people, how the left is unpatriotic and they're working, you know, to to undermine America and all this stuff is so ridiculous. And you know, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. There are very few. There are some I hold, you know, I say, okay, <laughs> something happened there and I grant you, but for the most part, they're ridiculous. And the way that they, they poison so many people's minds about wanting to believe in these conspiracy theories about how the left wants to ruin America is just so poisonous. And it's really, um, I think, aiding and abetting in people dying right now. Yeah, let me put it this way. When the, the stupid president of the United States is is waxing about injecting disinfectants into your body as a possible solution to something, which is so ridiculous. I mean, I can't think of anybody in any age who would think that was possible. I, I can't imagine a five-year-old considering that as a possibility. I mean, it is one of the most stupid things I've ever seen. And I know a lot of people have covered this and everything. But here's the other thing, guys. The fact that, you know, the people who are drinking all of that Kool-Aid might think that the president is right and that somehow information is being kept from us. Are disinfectants in our body the way to go? I don't know. We can't trust the leftist media. If they're saying that the president is wrong about that, maybe he's right. This is what we're up against right now. I mean, how insane is that? It drives me fucking crazy. Uh, president Trump, basically, in my mind, he has just been a global embarrassment, a global embarrassment. When you think about presidencies, and you know, I, I like looking at the histories of presidencies and all that kind of stuff, you know, and how presidents have reacted in certain times. And usually, crises usually tell you who the president really is. It, you know, it really reveals character. And man, here's what's interesting about Trump. We didn't need the crisis to reveal his character. We already knew it. This crisis confirmed his character. The level to which this emperor is naked is astounding. 
astounding to me. And it's not even, the emperor's naked is not even a true analogy for uh, Trump, because not only is Trump naked, Trump turns it around. Like in the in the fable of the emperor's naked, all that emperor did was he was in a bubble. <laughs> I'm going on a tangent right now. But that emperor, he was in a bubble and no one wanted to tell him that he was actually naked when they, you know, you know, saying he was wearing all these beautiful things and the kid said he was naked, blah, blah, blah. But with Trump, it's not even an innocent bubble. Trump actually turns it around and accuses other people of being naked. This is what's crazy about it. He's not content to just be in a bubble and have his sycophants telling him he looks beautiful. He's got to turn it around and say that everyone else is naked. Like it, it, to me, it feels like like in the way that he projects his own corrupt ideology onto the world, as if that's how the world thinks. Where it's actually how he thinks and how his system is built. It's almost like instinctively, his fat body, like on a cellular level, is trying to reject all that corrosive orangeade coursing through its ecosystem <laughs> that it, it has to project that onto the world in order to feel safe or normal or something, you know, if I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt of just not being a, a corrupt asshole, but he's just been an embarrassment. And you know, and the level to which the people around him and the level to which he needs to be right about things and try to feel like he's being an expert is so fucking embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing in the way that he demands that the people kiss up to him in a global pandemic, you guys. This is what's insane about it. It's magnified so many times now, this type of behavior. Like the fact that Mike Pence, because Trump doesn't like people wearing masks, goes to the Mayo Clinic and doesn't wear a mask and looks like a fucking asshole. You know, fuck Mike Pence, by the way. Fuck him for walking through the Mayo Clinic without a mask. The fucking disrespect he gave that entire place and those people was fucking disrespectful, man. Fuck that motherfucker. That was crazy. I couldn't believe that. You know, be a man at some fucking point. Be a fucking man. You know? Go back to, to the president and he's, you were wearing a mask? Yeah, motherfucker, I'm wearing a mask. I'm in the male fucking clinic. What the fuck am I supposed to do? Jesus Christ. I mean, at some point, don't you have to say that at some point? What's the worst that's going to happen? You're not going to be vice president? Yay. That would be fantastic. As opposed to losing every ounce of, of integrity you might have left in your body, for Christ's sakes. Anyhow. I guess the the good part about some of where we are right now is that at the local level is where the decisions are going to be made. And that's probably a good thing because we really don't want Trump making these decisions, you know, and you kind of have to hope that your local municipality or county or state or whatever, the local people who are making the decisions are making the right ones. But, you know, I think we should be happy that it's in that position now. So that's where we are right now. And this is going to be a day-to-day, week-to-week thing. We'll see what's going to happen. But I do think that, like, um, even going to restaurants, and I talk about this with, with David coming up, even going to restaurants, we're just going to have to get used to wearing masks for a long time, not just for a couple of weeks. Like, the people who think things have to get back to normal in a couple of weeks, sorry, that's not going to happen. Things have to, things, I think things should get to a new normal, you know, very quickly. But there's no way things are going to go back to normal, at least for a long time. It's kind of the situation that we're in. And let's hope we can stop fighting on both sides of, of this issue and just understand together that we got to do this as a, as a unit and uh, kind of rebuild things step by step and piece by piece. All right. That's my rant. We got David Chang coming up. And uh, that's all I got. All right, welcome back. Uh, I'm very pleased to have, uh, let's just say father. How about that? Uh, there you <laughs> go. But famous restaurateur, chef. You know him from Momofuku Noodle Bar and all his restaurants around the world. He's the ugly, delicious man. Dave Chang, welcome to Black in the Air, David. Larry, honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Man, the honor is all mine. Um, man, you made a splash from the beginning when you hit the scene back in the day in Manhattan. And uh, you just haven't stopped since then. And really been one of those awesome, great voices out there in the world of food. You know, it's really cool to see you out in the world, man. Very cool. 
Yeah, it's been a crazy ride. Never, never thought I'd even get to this point at all. Zero. Yeah, I can imagine. I want to talk about that a little later, some of your beginnings, but let's talk about the situation right now. First of all, how are you holding up during all of this? I know people that do what you do, and what I mean specifically is about owning restaurants. Let's talk about that and the the actual act of owning a restaurant. Like, how is how is that part of your business doing right now? Um, well, we've been shut down for six weeks. Um mm-hmm trying to work diligently at the day we can reopen up and figuring out how to take care of a lot of the employees that we had to furlough. And it's, uh, it's hard to have hope, but that's what we have to have and remind ourselves every day that we have to make the impossible happen. And, and, and that's, that's actually what's keeping me optimistic is if we try Mm -hmm. to take any paradigm or patterns that we worked in the past or used in the past to move forward, it's not going to work. And, and, and the common thread, and I don't think it's just the restaurant industry, is, you know, we have to find ways to make the things that we never thought possible, possible now. And there's no more can'ts, and I, I wouldn't, or it, that's impossible. That's not part of the lexicon in our restaurant, even though we try mm-hmm. to, we say it all the time. We got to remind ourselves because uh, we have a lot of safety protocol we have to figure out. We have mm-hmm. an opportunity to remedy and fix a lot of the systematic problems that were in the restaurant business beforehand. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I almost put restaurants right now at a much lower level of importance. And it's it's mm-hmm. about trying to help the people that were struggling before COVID-19 in the restaurant right. and not in the restaurant universe. And we're closed. Uh, we have restaurants in, in a variety of places. Uh, how I think how many restaurants do you have right now? Uh, like full-size restaurants. We have like 15 of them. And mm-hmm. we've decided to be overly cautious on safety. Uh, we have, mm-hmm. you know, when it all ha- happened, because I've been following this for a while, um, I have friends in Asia and they've been keeping me up to date and I've been, I'm a hyper paranoid person to begin with. So I, we were trying oh, really? to game plan <laughs> scenarios before uh-huh. all this. Um, were you getting nervous in January when you were first hearing about this or did it seem so far away? It didn't seem like it would be a, a deal. Both. I think we were prepared and not prepared. Um, uh-huh. Because we just opened up in Las Vegas too, so a lot of my mind was getting mm-hmm. that done, and and I was also Focused filming a, a sh- and a filming a show too. So mm-hmm. I'm not running the day to day of the operations. Marguerite Mariscal is, and I needed to sort out that first and foremost. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we can only do so much. And you know, I wish we were better prepared. I think everybody wishes they were better prepared, but yeah. I think the plans that we had laid out were uh, not enough. Um, you know, no, no question, they weren't enough. It seems to me, David, when this first started, the shutdown, like, I feel like people had a sense that maybe it'd be like people had to be furloughed for like a week and a half or two weeks. Like, that was like, even though we didn't quite know what was going on, it felt like there was a sense that maybe it wouldn't last that long. I feel like we were all in a state of denial at first. Does, yeah. does that feel right? Yeah, 100%. I, I was yeah. in a state of denial and I was definitely, very, very yeah. paranoid too. Like, yeah. if you ask anybody, like, I was freaking out, but also in denial mm-hmm. simultaneously and, yeah. and doing whatever we could to prepare. And, you know, with Korea getting hit and having friends that operate restaurants there in Shanghai and Hong Kong, mm-hmm. you know, I, I immediately saw that there was a shift in how Asia as a whole was going to handle this epidemic, a pandemic, because they had SARS before and MERS before, right. and they were ready, right. more readily prepared. And, you know, I don't know. And I'm, I'm really trying to sort out why I was in denial, even though I was uh-huh. freaking out. You know, it doesn't yeah. make any sense to me, but because I think I just didn't know if you don't want to raise the alarm so much that people think you're, you know, a tinfoil, wearing tinfoil, you know? Right, right, right. Exactly. I think some of it is, and this is going to sound weird, but some of it I think is American privilege, to be honest with you. It's like, we don't feel something that bad is going to happen to us. I think there's something about us that just feels that, whether right or wrong. Like, we really haven't been attacked on our shores outside of Pearl Harbor. You know, like, people in other countries have been, like, vicious attacks, yeah. that kind of thing. Like, we, we're we really in a bubble sometimes. And I think this is the first time something this big, I, I mean, 9-11 kind of pierced our consciousness because that was this attack that happened. And we felt like, how could that happen to us? And people were shattered, I remember, right after that. And this kind of has that feeling of it where 
there was such a denial in the beginning because I think it felt like how can how can something be so bad to us? Mm-hmm. Well, that was my benchmark too. Was nine eleven right? Like, and and that's when I knew things were going to get bad <laughs> uh, pretty pretty soon. I. I because it, I, I just roughly calculated in my head, you know, being in the restaurant industry then when September 11th happened, mm-hmm. you know, I actually worked in Japan for like a year and then came back and then worked for Danielle Blude. And when I came back in the summer of 2003, hospitality industry was still hurting from September 11th. Right. That's two years plus for tourism yeah. to get back to normal. And then it did. And that just was, you know, south of 14th Street, a lot of restaurants were affected. But as yeah. a whole, people weren't coming back in numbers because I was working on the Upper East Side. So I was like, wow, if that was just localized there, but this is now simultaneously happening the world over, you know, tourism as a whole may not come back for quite some time until there's a vaccine. So I was just trying That's to crazy. imagine, you know, what? it's great that we have all of these scenarios planned out. What's the extreme how do we define the the spectrum by defining the ends of these things, right? So worst case yeah. scenario, best case scenario. And then best case scenario is we'd have to have a vaccine. I was like, oh, that's minimum. I don't know how long out now. So I was like, oh, we need to prepare ourselves for a year plus. How do we do that? Yeah. A, a lot of it is uh, just dealing with the dark. There's some people, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who said, you know, she feels like she can't plan anything right now. I mean, anything. And that's kind of shocking when you think about that. I mean, it feels like you can make maybe, you know, work out scenarios for things. But in terms of planning, when you take traveling out of the equation of your life, it's it's amazing how that just closes off almost everything. Right. So much of the restaurant industry is about travel too, right? It's just right. funny it's, to think about that. I was like, oh my God, we were in a, an incredibly difficult business beforehand with high rates of attrition exactly uh, and now we, 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 this is this is the hardest battle to have if, if we're a business so you know i will say though it's a little bit different um you know having seen and talked to not seen but zooming like we are now mm-hmm. uh, tours and chefs across the country uh, new york city i'm just outside new york right now is by far the worst you know I was like, there's no way New York's going to be worse than Wuhan. Well, we are. And wow. If you think about That's it that amazing. way. That's right? amazing. Think about that. It's crazy. Yeah. People are like almost joking about Wuhan and the measures they were taking. Yeah. In, from America's perspective. And we're in, in some ways a lot worse. And, and it's crazy to think in New York and what's happening in New York is mm-hmm. going to be very different than the rest of the country because of yeah. the density. What made New York so vibrant and great and gave it strength, they're now working yep. against it. I and completely agree. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's restaurants that are open for takeaway and delivery and in the West Coast and everywhere. Like, you know, we have a restaurant in Los Angeles. We've decided not to do it because this is the this is the moral dilemma. So for me, do you know about the trolley car problem? No. Are you familiar with that? So like, I you know, I, I studied all this stuff in college. I don't know why I remembered it at all, but they, you know, they teach it in like moral philosophy class. So, you know. Okay. Effectively, you're you're in a position where a train or a trolley is coming through, and you have a vantage point to see that if left on its own like train tracks, it's going to kill like five people because five people right. are right in there. Or you have a lever right to your at your hand, and if you press that, it'll veer left and only kill one person. And right. I know that's these are extreme academic sort of scenarios, but I was very upset that most chefs that I knew felt like they were having to make this in real time and closing the restaurant was difficult. And then reopening the restaurants because everybody wants to do help. Everybody wants to do charity work, you know, but we have, it's, it's just a lot more complicated than it seems to be. So we wanted to over-index on being safe. So we closed. We've had a lot of false starts about reopening for charity and to do takeaway and delivery, but it's a little bit more difficult in New York. And even though in LA, a lot of our managers are married with children. Sure. Or a couple of them, you know, their, their wives work. So like there's daycare issues. So how do you work and maybe do an act of good only to potentially bring back something home? Because we don't have safety protocol for the government and we don't have the PPE. And there's a lot of things that are up in the air and we're going to do our best to make sure that no one gets this and dies or it gets yeah. incredibly sick. It's just not worth it. So I don't have those answers. So yes, we could. Our restaurant in LA is perfectly situated to do it, but we've got to do it where everyone feels comfortable, safe. Yeah, the, the other philosophical construct is 
you know, restaurants are Schrodinger's cat right now. They're both mm. open and closed at the same time. Yes, <laughs> you <know>? absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's like, and even the notion of opening them half full to me isn't quite a solution because you're almost setting up failure. You know, like most restaurants, if they say all you can have is half the business, can you survive? It's like, I don't think so. Our model is based on capacity, you know. Larry, if, if it's 90%. <laughs> Yeah. It's total failure rate. Wow. <laughs> so I mean, it feels like almost like imposing this. And, and you know what's interesting, too, when you talk about New York, like people that haven't been to restaurants in New York have no idea that every other restaurant in the country already feels like they're social distancing when you compare it to restaurants right, in New York. Right, right. <laughs> because you're already sitting on top of each other, the New York style of restaurant, you know. Um, but, but, you know, and, it's it's not just New York, like Chicago, like uh, Grant Ockett's, the great chef, and Nick Kikonis, they're, they're doing yeah. great right now. You know, and, and part of it is they were ahead, they, they're a world-class organization, but I think the biggest thing that they have to their advantage was they can drive to work. Mm-hmm. And they have the space. And space yeah. and being able to get to work safely is a huge thing. And right. there are people that are successful, and we're going to get there and hopefully help lead the way for everyone else to get there. But it's not a race. This is a marathon, and we're in like the first mile. And, and I don't think there's a first mover advantage right now. But the, going back to this trolley car problem, the alternative problem was if we sort of save and be safe here, are we – if we're so worried about safety, are we jeopardizing the safety of the people that we're trying to save by putting them out there at home? You know, mm-hmm. and, and unfortunately, like our our we just couldn't afford to pay everyone. They're, they're just yeah. we just don't have the ability to do that. And it's been difficult. And I don't I, I want to take that into like with a grain of salt. Like there are people out there that are going much more difficult things and hardships. Right. I'm just simply saying the problem and the conundrum of like how do you do it where someone wins? The restaurant business is full of people that want everyone to win. Mm-hmm. And when you have to make a decision knowing that someone's going to lose, it sucks. And uh, most people have kind of a one-dimensional view of restaurants, you know, where you go in and there's people that serve you, you know, and there's somebody that cooks the food. But the whole chain of people that are involved in the whole restaurant business is huge, you know, and all of that is being affected right now, right? Yeah. I mean, which is why, you know, too small to fail is the same result as too big to fail. Mm -hmm. And even though we're not banks, restaurants are eclectic and diverse, as everyone's mm-hmm. aware of you in LA, you have taco trucks to taco shops and high-end tacos and low-end tacos. And we're just talking about tacos, right? It's yeah. everything. It's so diverse. And within that diversity, it all supports this ecosystem and culture. And, and we're not financial banks, but we're like cultural banks for society and culture because mm-hmm. 90% of the revenue that's generated by restaurant goes back out into the world. Okay. On average. So if you're a florist, if you're a baker, if you collect trash, if you're a fishmonger, you make you know, meat deliveries, whatever, the entire sort of universe, it seems, is tied to restaurants. And when restaurants mm-hmm. can't function, look at what's happening right now with, in Idaho with the potatoes yeah. and onions. Like they're, they're just having to throw them away because it's if crazy. people aren't going to restaurants – then they just, there's, it's not about supply to the grocery stores. It's just yeah. how much we need restaurants to like be around. And when that shuts down, that's why Larry, I get so angry and concerned mm-hmm. about what's going on. And I hope that when we all look back on this 20, 50 years from now, it'll be seen as the people that were most important were the people that were being neglected all along. And, wow. and it's the, the food service worker, the, the, the bus boy, the dishwasher, the fact that the market is, is at like almost 3,000 on the S&P is an indicator of just what I think we value in this country right now. We don't Christ. really care too much about the people that actually have to do menial labor and tasks. Yeah. And it's essential. And we're going to see that. And the government is doing their best. I know that. I can't believe I can say that. But I know well, that they're trying. Yes. And not, not as some people. <laughs> Let me just say that. But like, yeah. they have no choice because if they don't do it, it's, it's going to get really ugly. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to see, you know, when Tyson made that announcement earlier this week about they were concerned about the food chain being disrupted and having to all the you see all these stories of cattle having to be slaughtered. There's, you know, no place for all this food to go. Meanwhile, people are standing in line at food banks, you know, in their cars and things like that, you know. Which well, Tyson was sort, Tyson Tyson was sort of the problem. They created this bottleneck so they could control it, and this is this is mm-hmm. what happens, right? So, you know, as a whole, I think food. I just what I do you mean, what do you mean how, by that? Can you explain that a little bit more? 
we're entirely dependent and relying upon like a handful of giant meat producers. Uh-huh. It's if this was a system that was more dependent on local farms and co-ops, it wouldn't be this way, right? So when right. everyone controls one thing, then the, the, and it's a lot of it's the distribution channels. It's just like, uh-huh. of course, it's going to get go sideways. And Tyson, and unfortunately, it's it's a perishable product, and we're talking about yeah. animal lives. But I actually. <laughs> I am hopeful that all of these things will be addressed in the coming months to make sure that it doesn't happen again, because shame on us once, right? Like we, we, right. we can't do this two times in a row. And, you know, you know, the, the whole food system, right. Even going back to our unfortunate president, right. About what you eat and mm-hmm. it, it's so important, right. How he treats immigrants, right. The shithole countries, as he says, and mm-hmm. all these, people like Mexican food, for instance, example, if he, if he doesn't care about them as people, why is he going to care about the food that they eat? Uh And the many, many people that have restaurants that feed these people that he makes fun of, or just doesn't care about. And that's the problem is we need to make sure that these are the institutions that are going to be safe because they are cultural institutions. Yeah. And I hope to God that we do something. And I actually don't know if the government's going to do it. I believe the private companies of this world, the Googles, the Facebooks, mm-hmm. the ABM Bev, they have to do this. Because if they lose what makes America so really great, then it's going to be dark times. And Dave, you've always, um, you've always kind of highlighted culture and food and mixed them together, you know, in, in your Netflix shows and the way you talk about food and culture too. It feels like from my point of view that to you, culture and food are inextricably mixed, you know? And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And it feels like, I feel like a lot of small restaurants around the country may just be gone, you know, and a lot of the culture that's associated with some of those restaurants is, you know, like that's a huge issue, you know, <laughs> with, with these things not being able to survive. I, I saw an interview you did where you talked about only the people that have cash are going to be able to survive. Are you concerned about some of these small restaurants and the future uh, of, of yeah, some of those I, things? Yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. I am definitely concerned. And, you know, the the, the PPP and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if I had to do it, if they, the government had to do it all over again, they should have just let the first people that got money to be 50,000 to 100,000 tops. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, the Lakers got $8 million or whatever it was. And I'm a huge yeah. Lakers fan. I'm like, Lakers, what are you doing asking for money? This is crazy. 4.6. And that's how much Lakers got. So, Oh, yeah. Whatever um, it was. It's too much. You know, yeah. I, you know, we applied and we're still waiting to hear back. And uh, I think the second tranche is going to hopefully I, – I, this is what I believe. I, I actually mm-hmm. think – that there's no other choice because the, the government is going to have to make sure that everybody gets something. Um, right. And if it doesn't, that's a total failure. And it's also embarrassing that other countries are doing amazing jobs. You know, mm-hmm. Canada, Denmark, the UK are doing not just giving money to employees. They're, they're really trying their best to save the industry. And we're just doing a shameful job of it in America so far. So, you know, we need to give, we need to give, all kinds of loans to restaurants for them to survive. But simultaneously, you know, some of the questions I've been having behind the scenes is, you know, the hard question is what kinds of restaurants are going to survive? Right. Exactly. That, that's what I'm saying, you know, and uh, some are just going to be gone. There's nothing you can do about it because you can only be closed for so long. Like a lot of this is just unsustainable, even from the government's point of view, government can't continue just to print money and give it out. I mean, there's an implosion coming up that, you know, really, really worries me about the ability of many things that that are in our culture going away, you know? And I mean, uh, Larry, I, I just, I don't know what to do. I, I mean, all I know yeah. is we, we, we need to get this done on the health care front first, right? We need to be able to limit the this virus and, and get mm-hmm. back to some level yeah, of safety. Both. Yeah. But my, my focus is how do we get safety protocol for the restaurants themselves? There's too many people yeah. that are working in uh, not safe environments right now because the government's let them down on protocol. Like, yeah, I'll just give you a, a simple example. Like bleach solution is what most restaurants have. How do you know if bleach still works? I think it still does. And the CDC says that, but they can put out these things, but it's, 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 it's much more complicated than that. Most bleach solutions have a sponge or a, a, a towel in this mm-hmm. bucket. Are we even allowed to do that anymore? 
uh-huh. or it doesn't have to be a disposable towel. And that seems like something very simple, but it's not. Because now every time you have to throw something away, you're adding incremental cost. And think about this, like restaurants are going to have to have masks. Right, definitely. Do we know if homemade masks are going to be okay while cooking food? And are the masks intended to protect the person wearing the mask or the people who they're serving or involved with or the food that they're cooking? Just food? Is there transmission that can happen on food or on plates? Can something be on a plate? Right. Like, I feel like all of these are questions that are out there, right? So, you know, I, I, we're going to be fine. I mean, we're, we're doing our best to find ways to stay afloat. And, and uh, honestly, like, I don't even care about this certain sector of restaurants, including my own. I do. I obviously would love to reopen up and sure. to take care of everybody. That's not like, I'm not trying to sound like a sociopath there. I'm just simply saying, like, if we have problems everyone else of a restaurant group of our size and, and caliber has problems, then man, like what about the restaurant that I love to eat on the, on the, on the, you know, in K town that doesn't know mm-hmm. how to do all these things. And, and the other concern that we're going to have very pragmatically is on the protective personal protective equipment. It's going to be expensive. Yeah. How do we subsidize this cost? We have to find a way to give it to the black community, the Latino community, people mm-hmm. that, haven't has sort of been neglected all along because yeah. the last thing we want to do is be like a restaurant, uh, a customer being like, when things are open, yeah, I'm not going to go to that restaurant because I don't think they're safe with their food. Well, it's right. not because they don't want to be safe. Maybe they can't afford it. And that's fucked up, Larry. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And they always get served the last, you know, to mix a metaphor. You know, the other thing when we're talking about culture and food, like when I think of Korean food and sometimes of how people are, are, you have the hibachis at your table or you're cooking at your table and that sort of thing. Or, you know, I don't know how that culture is going to change now. You know, if people are going to feel safe doing that type of thing, you know, and there's a lot of that. <laughs> there's a lot of that out of the world. And, you know, that type of eating may go away, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, the reality is, is <laughs> fast food, giant food, fast food corporations are going to benefit and they have benefited. Um, because yeah, what Jack they need in the to box change. is king in this in this age, you know, one hundred percent. And because they don't, you don't have to taste the food to begin with. It's already preset. It's and so uh, I think when independent restaurants open back up again, they're going to have to raise prices, and yeah. there's going to be a bigger discrepancy than ever before with, say, a Big Mac, which is not going to have to raise that price. And yeah. You know, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to make people depressed about this. This is what I ruminate no, on. No, 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 no. This is important stuff. We're, this is the times we in, that we're in. You know. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think this will change what people eat? You know, because it's going to change how we eat. But I wonder, like, when I was thinking about the whole Tyson thing and when you're looking at some of these images and stuff, do you think what people eat is going to change for better or for worse? I think two things are going to happen, I hope. People are going to be cooking at home. Obviously, they're going to get better cooks. They're definitely doing cooks. that, you know. Yeah. But you know, a friend of mine, Lily Kwong, she's 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 been trying her best to bring back Victory Gardens, uh-huh. and and Victory Gardens were in the UK and America, where in World War One and World War Two, yes, that's right. Everyone just had to start growing their own food. It was encouraged. There were plots of land that the community that's could right. grow food. And I think yeah. we're going to go back to that. I really do, and and think. Gardens are going to be more important than ever before. So, but mm-hmm. again, not everybody, but I do believe that we're going to have to do that. But I think what people are going to eat for sure is, is uh, going to change because restaurants for the most part are going to be takeaway and delivery. So a lot of the meals you're going to have to make might be made yourself with like a 90% of it done by a restaurant. That is until we have a vaccine. But I do think too, that I wonder when Tyson's and the, and the, and the big meat producers of the world say there could be scarcity or problems. Like, I wonder if they're telling the truth mm-hmm. <laughs> because maybe they want to get intervention. Maybe they want to get help from the government, you know, more than, I don't know. I just, I find that whole world to be shady as fuck. So yeah. um, I think we should have supply chains. I do know that one of the top priorities for the government is to protect the, the food distribution centers that are located at throughout this country and to make sure that we have enough food. And so far, I think it, they've done a good job at that. Um, yeah. I just think we're going to have to figure out what is life like without dining in a restaurant. Yeah. Do you have an opinion about wet markets and, and that sort of thing that's happening now? Like there was a lot of concern about it because of, people felt that in Wuhan, 
maybe the virus could have been spread there. And there's some of those that are here in this country too. What do you have an opinion about that? Um, I, I do, but it's not like a real opinion. It's, it's, uh-huh. I think that they're going to, China should ban all of the things that could transmit coronavirus. Uh-huh. But, you know, wet market sort of has this like terrible, like, I don't know, it just doesn't sound very good. Um, <laughs> it's a wet market. <laughs> yeah. But but it's 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 part of culture in Asia. That's how mm-hmm. food gets made. There's like usually like like water running or not. It's not mm-hmm. water running, but like things get washed down and things get killed there uh, mm-hmm. in the moment. And there's a f- different kinds of markets. And I don't know if you have them in Asia. It's it's. I mean, I've spoken to some of my friends about it. They imagine like they're just slaughtering, you know. A jungle in there and that's not right. the case there's there's normal things that you would normally see it's just also you know i've never seen that stuff before you know mm-hmm. but i know that there obviously have been some but i wouldn't be surprised if china clamped down on that finally uh, as it should be the the the, mm-hmm. the the sale of uh endangered species and animals and um you know if it is the bat, like fuck, man, like, <laughs> <laughs> man, I would, I was so looking forward to a bat burger too. I yeah. guess that's going yeah. out the window. Uh, has this changed um, your idea of of what you want to do personally in your in your career at this point? Has it created a big shift for you? Yeah, I mean, it's been. I mean, I'm really having this conversation actively within my, mm-hmm. my brain. Um, yeah. I mean, very honestly, like I, I talked to Marge or CEO on a daily basis and, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are days where I like, I don't know if I can like, how do you do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. and I never want to be put in a position where, you know, why build something up if you can't take care of everybody? Right. And there's definitely been thoughts of like, you know, I mean, even in good moments, I think I quit every day for five minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. do. Certainly, there's been a lot more of that thought. Uh, mm-hmm. But I always come back to some kind of normal where I'm like, no, no, no we got to keep on going. We got to better the lives. Mm-hmm. We got to do this right. And the hard part is, is you don't really have an answer. And that's what makes it hard. It's a, it's a yeah. you know, like I've, I'm a firm believer in, you know, Camus' rebellion against like mm-hmm. the, existential dread all right the best thing you can do is to reject yourself and do something good make life better for other people first and the hard thing to see is like what is that good right now and that is the hope and if you can't have that hope it makes it really hard because the last thing you want to do is build something up you know i thought we've done our best to make momofuku a very like strong great place with blah 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 but we failed and I'm mad at myself more than anyone could ever imagine because we weren't able to prepare for this and to better protect the interests of our employees. And we're really thinking about this long and hard about how do we do this? How do we, mm-hmm. how long can we continue to pay Cobra? How long, like all of yeah. these things are really problematic. And, you know, what's the point of restaurants if there's no restaurants, like yeah. restaurant like culture anymore? So, yeah, these are normal thoughts and I'm not trying to bum anyone out here, but I'm having doubts just like anyone else, but I promise mm-hmm. you I'm not going to quit. I'm just telling right. you it's been uh, you know, this very arduous struggle, daily struggle of like, man, I just need a glimmer of hope. That's all I yeah. need to get me through this. Well, you're very introspective about this. It's interesting cuz um I remember uh reading an interview with you uh I think it was a long time ago where I think you were talking about how you fell into some of that pattern of, you you know, how we see the stereotypical angry boss in the kitchen type of thing, you know, the abusive type of relationship. And you talked about how your relationship growing up was you were always yelled at. Yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of the culture. Now, do you think having gone through this, and I'm sure over the years, you, you I'm sure there's been an evolution, but has this changed you in terms of how you feel about your relationship with the people who work? who work for you and with you? Um, actually, I don't think this has changed that at all. I think that change has mm-hmm. been long, long time coming. And, sure. and a lot of that was just maturity. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were supposed to have this book come out next month, but I think it's going to be September. But in, in it, okay. we talk a lot about that struggle, that growth. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have, uh, you know, you know, if I didn't have a psychiatrist, like 
so much of it was not not just dealing with my depression it was a lot of it dealing with my anger and mm. nobody nobody should be food's not important enough to make someone feel bad mm-hmm. and that's the biggest lesson i learned and i learned along the way that i'm a fucking asshole <laughs> uh and I, there's no reason to be that so i have to do my best not to to go down those default settings of mine but as a whole this this coronavirus COVID-19 epidemic has just showed me how fragile this whole thing is, mm-hmm. what's genuinely important and you know, how we treat everybody moving forward is uh, it has to be more on the economic thing. It's like, how do we get rid of tips? How do we make sure that mm. we have paid leave? How do we make sure that if we, we can, we afford hazard pay, right? Like th- these are the things that I feel like I am actually focusing my efforts because I think the maturation process of me is never going to be complete, but I feel like how I treat people has gotten a lot better. It can always be better. And my focus during coronavirus has certainly been, how do we make sure we never in this position again? And Mm -hmm. how do we make sure that our employees are going to be better prepared for this? Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, David, what do you think we can do? The people who support these businesses and want to support it. I have many friends who are in this business of, uh, I live here in Pasadena, California, and I have some friends in the restaurant business. They're really hurting because they have small businesses, you know, and you try to support, but it's not the same takeout as it is going there and you're ordering drinks, you know, and it's the culture of it. What are some of the ways that we can help from the outside? Or is there anything that we can do? Well, first of all, we'll be joining you in Pasadena. We, we've been trying to do this move for a while, but you uh-huh. know, Grace's parents are, 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 are live there, and and um, oh, great, awesome! Yeah. Come on so, over. You know, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's a little bit hard to travel right now, but uh, yeah. we're gonna figure it out. But in terms of what you can do to support the restaurant, I think you can buy guest certificates. Just don't use them right now. You can support uh-huh. most restaurants have a GoFundMe page. I'm gonna tell you a story. We had Wiley Dufresne on a podcast, and he'll tell you this story. And I'm just gonna okay. give you a shortened version of it. Great. He has a donut shop in Brooklyn. He hadn't been there in five plus weeks. He had to pick up some supplies to feed his family and mm-hmm. uh, and just other stuff for kitchen stuff. And you know he lives in Connecticut and he came in and then he's uh, gathering all the supplies and he hears a knock on the door and everything's boarded up and he knocks and it's his dishwasher and his uh-huh. dishwasher says like chef like you're back and he's like yeah what are you doing here how'd you know I was here he's like oh I come here every day at this time on my bicycle so I was like. He's like, you, you come here, every, you've been here every day since we've closed, like, you know, five plus weeks ago. He's like, yeah. He's like, I can't afford my cell bill, my, my cell phone bill, and I don't have internet. So I just have to come here physically to see if we're going to be open. And that just, that's like the saddest fucking story. Wow. And that's a real story. And that's happening all over this country. People that don't have enough to even get the information about things that we take for granted. And, you know, Wiley has a GoFundMe page. You should check it out. It's Dues Donuts. And Great. that's how you can do it. You can put money. If the government won't do it, you can put money directly into the pockets of employees. And yes, there, there's been a lot of issues with the GoFundMe package uh, mm-hmm. restaurants. I mean, you have to trust that all the charity is going to go directly back to the employees as it should. But that's what you can do is help put money directly into the pockets of the employees that need it. And um, I, I think that's the only thing we can do right now. Is mm-hmm. to make sure that they have the basic needs of shelter, of food, of of comfort and health. You know, yeah. It's, um, the, open, opening the restaurants are really not that important right now. They are because mm-hmm. we have to feed people, and we need enough restaurants to keep employed. And I'd also just add, there seems to be this weird. Again, like if I was twenty six years old, twenty seven years old, I'd be open right now, Larry, mm-hmm. and I would just be doing it myself, and I'd be, you know donating meals and doing whatever I could to make this all work. But my life isn't like that anymore. Uh And that's another thing that everyone has to keep in mind is like, just because someone can't do something doesn't mean like their heart's not doing it. You know, it's just a complicated mess of a situation and you can go down that rabbit hole forever. But the thing that we can do is, you know, for sure that people are suffering. You can donate to the food banks. You can Mm -hmm. donate to the Lee initiative, which is started by chef Edward Lee in in Kentucky. And they're giving aid and assistance to hospitality workers. All you have to do is show your W2 form in Los Angeles. Squirrel right now is doing that program. So if you work in the hospitality industry and you need food to live off of, you bring your W2 of your last paycheck and they'll give you supplies. That's great. There, there, there are a lot of programs. And I think the, if you really love your restaurant, just give them money. If, yeah. if there's a local restaurant you love, 
if they don't have a GoFundMe page, set it up for them. Yeah. That's a great idea. Really, really a great idea. Um, and food banks, I think, are a good thing for people to donate to as well, right? Yeah, I'm on the board of a couple. Um, mm-hmm. Incredibly important, more so than ever. And, good. you know, uh, you know, the Ringers, obviously, we've been doing a lot with Jose and the World Central Kitchen. Um, Absolutely. It is uh, so vital to feed people yeah. right now. Um, and and Absolutely. they're in 22 plus cities and growing. So there are a lot of good, Just just know that, people are in need and, and, and yep. probably worse off than you are right now. And, and this is the time to, to, to pay it yep. forward if there ever was a time. Absolutely. Completely. What well, very well said, David, thank you so much for being in here. Uh, I want to end on a, maybe a, a nice person. You know, we can hear your son. Is that Hugo? Hugo. Yeah. No, he's, he's, he's downstairs. He was just, uh, he was eating. And like the only yeah. place where I can record this is at the dinner table. <laughs> That's great. Uh, one last thing. How has uh, being a father affected you uh, personally through all this and in just life in general? Has that been a, a big change for you? You know, we did an Ugly Delicious episode that covered some of it, but yeah, that's dad, right. You, you did the, the whole baby episode with uh, it's, um, the, I don't know if, uh, it's making me be the best version of myself and, mm-hmm. uh, I, and to truly, if there's been one benefit to being quarantined, it's being able to spend time with him to, to, yeah. to not have to rush home to make sure that I, I have some, you know, few minutes, um, mm-hmm. and to see him grow up. To, I was able to see his first steps as a child ah, and, so great. and, um, and I make his food, I make all his meals and that's been great. And yeah. if there's one person that's having a great time right now, in quarantine, it's my son. <laughs> oh, that's so great. That's awesome. He's loving it. He's got his grandparents here. You yeah. know, we're, we're all stuck in this this place, but he's um, he's could having a grand worse. old time and could, it could be way worse. Yeah, it's like my dog, uh, Buster. Buster's having the time of his life right now. <laughs> he's getting all this attention and he's, he's just really enjoying it, which I'm like, good for you, Buster. Laugh it up, man. You deserve it, you know. Well, David, uh, once again, thanks so much. I appreciate, uh, man, I appreciate all your your words on this subject. Um, you know, even though it's, God, you know, it's tough for me to even talk about some of the stuff right now. There's so many people that are in need right now, and I, I can feel all your emotions behind this. I know how invested you are, not just in the industry of having restaurants, but in the business of feeding people, you know, and how important food is in our culture. I really appreciate you talk with me today is any other last words you have that maybe you want to say out there yeah i'll say this you know and i might have said this before but again i talked to dr jim kim he was one of the founders Mm -hmm. of partners of health and he was the president of the world bank and he's now helping out massachusetts and and, in contact tracing and really going on the offensive for this right i just want to reiterate what he told me and it's going to be on our podcast but he basically said you know we have to make the impossible happen. Let mm-hmm. me just reiterate that. It's like, this is not going to happen by having a mediocre solution. We That's have to right. demand the best possible outcomes and reverse engineer it without taking any compromises. But this has got to be one on the healthcare front first. And I'm not an expert in that, but I can't do restaurants until our medical system, our nurses and doctors and everyone that's fighting this virus on the front lines can actually get this done first. So like we're sort of helpless. We can't really open our doors until the medical system can really be successful at this. So, you know, we need to do whatever we can to support them because once they get that done, then we can get a little bit busier and and get the ball rolling. But um, that's my biggest thing is helping out however I can on, on those fronts. Well said. David Chang, thanks so much for being in Black on the Air. Really appreciate it. Take care of yourself, man, and uh, really hoping for the best for all your ventures. Thanks, Larry.